Hi everyone, and welcome to Cuspers. I started this podcast because I was so fascinated by young people and the ways that new generations have different perspectives and cultural influences. Of course, got no idea uh, how much age is a reasonable framework for things like politics, music, art, the economy, and social issues. But as a cusper myself, trapped between the millennials and Gen Z, I often found myself torn between tribes. And now, as the cusper generation comes of age, I want to ask, what does it mean for our world? In today's episode, we'll be talking about relationships, which is ultimately the ways in which we form our own understandings of ourselves and other people. And of course, the unit with which we navigate the world of work, the world of marriage, home ownership, and ultimately the idea of family. Today, I'm joined by a good friend and a lady who recently got dumped, Zoe. Zoe, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you doing? How are you doing after the breakup? Honestly, amazing. Okay, well, good. That's what we that's what we like to hear. Um, do you consider yourself a millennial? I think I'm technically a millennial. I Wikipedia'd this before this podcast, and I was born at the very end of 1995. And I think that's like the last technical year of being a millennial. But I, you know, consider myself very young at heart. So I like am aspirationally a member of Gen Z. But I think you know many like Gen Zers would be like she's a millennial. Sure. And I think that a part of that just comes from, it takes a while, but eventually every generation just realizes they're no longer the coolest one. Exactly. Yeah. I've recently been thinking, I really wish I was still in college because I would love to write an essay about like the heteronormativity of TikTok and like the whiteness of TikTok. Okay. Because my feed, and I think it's partially because I follow a lot of bachelor contestants, um, my feed is just full of like straight couples that are just like, aren't stereotypes funny? And it's kind of horrifying. There's, um, there's a channel on YouTube that I, I mean, it's so cusper to just be of that generation that like falls down YouTube rabbit holes very quickly. Cause I remember being on YouTube back in the era when like everyone knew every video that was big on YouTube. Yes. And so I just sort of assume that, like, if something comes up on my feed, it's a pop culture moment as opposed to something that the algorithm has very carefully chosen to market to me specifically. Um, but there's this one channel on YouTube. I think the guy's name is Jamie Shea. Shout out Jamie Shea. Um, and he posts TikTok compilations. And I, I think there's one, like, every day or every couple of days. And the titles just get more and more outrageous. So, like, there's one that's, like, gay TikToks because quarantine has to end someday gay tiktoks because i'm gay you're gay we're all gay and we know it gay tiktoks because the gayer you get the gayer the world gets and it's just like a compilation of i'm presuming prominent lgbt tiktok personas um and so it's like very different to the experience you're talking about because it'll always open with someone being like listen up you cannot support Black Lives Matter if you don't also support the LGBT movement and vice versa. It's all of us or none of us. And then it'll like immediately flip to someone and they're like voicing themselves to, I don't know, like some song by Robin or Lord or Billie Eilish. And they'll just be like me when I came out to my mother or like then they'll flip to someone else and they'll just be like some young girl who I presume is like 12, but she'll turn out to be 18 or something because now they're all in pigtails again. And she'll be like, I'm not going to rate all of my family members by how homophobic they are. My younger sister, she's an 8 out of 10. Older sister, 6 out of 10. My mother, 5 out of 10. She thinks she's not homophobic, but she is. When we watch TV shows, she'll, like, be fine with all the gay scenes, and she'll look away for the lesbian scenes. And I'm like, I can't, I'm not part of this world anymore. (laughs) 
Yeah, I really have such a different experience of TikTok than you, which I think probably says something about me, given that's what the algorithm chooses to show me. But I recently saw a video and it was just this guy who was like super Southern, probably like from South Carolina, um, performing a song on guitar that was like about how a beer is better than a woman. Because he was like, the beer isn't going to get mad if your lips touch another beer. It's really, it was horrifying, but it was actually quite well written, which was a little bit upsetting. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I can, uh, on the one hand, and I have a lot of strong feelings, which I probably won't um, enumerate on this specific podcast about the ways in which like food is used by men as a demonstration of their masculine worth. Um, but uh, I, see you, I see you like wagging your finger because you want to talk about it. We will talk about it. But like, <laughs> one of the things that also really gets me is I love it when people are just like, clearly terrible but also like inadvertently incredibly radical so on the one hand yes on the other hand i just feel like he's making a really strong statement about monogamy as an oppressive norm i agree i also just on my one shout out is carol j adams book the sexual politics of meat which i recently read like a year ago and is just incredible yeah and it's also you know it says such obvious things that I think people don't necessarily appreciate when it first comes down to it. And, you know, one of the things that I've always found so interesting is it's always remarkable when men don't order meat for every course um, because it's seen as a sign of kind of like masculinity. And I kind of joke about this, like the way you find out that someone's a vegetarian is if you go on a date with them and they don't order meat. Um, But that idea that, you know, the food that you're drinking or I've had people say things to me like, well, I actually really like tea, but I just see it as more of a woman's thing than coffee. Or I think there's lots of people that, you know, for them, beer and wine is some sort of like gender based distinction. And it just ultimately all boils down to this idea that for some reason, the mainstream norms of masculinity are that men should smell worse, eat worse food, eat less food. And that is a sign of their goodness. Um Whereas actually it's the inverse. Like I just, the more that I hear about people who use two-in-one shampoos and they don't need to, I'm like, oh, please love yourself. <laughs> but I want to hear this song. I'm sure it's surprisingly good. Uh, no, it's so bad. I don't even know. Here's my other problem is I'm clearly not part of Gen Z because I have no idea how to find TikTok videos again. Yeah. Like I watch them once and then they disappear into the ether. I, I have, like, tried recording some TikTok videos, and I'm not entirely sure how the recording system works, and there are no instructions, no. which is the worst. They're just like, oh, didn't you come out of the womb recording TikTok videos? And it's like, no, I am in my early 20s, and I need help. That's why I can never be a content creator, and I understand that about myself. But you also do contribute content. So, I mean, one of the things that I saw of yours recently was you participating at an open mic night. Um, Do you want to talk a little bit about kind of the ways in which you get involved with sharing yourself with the world that isn't TikTok? So I enjoy writing stand-up and occasionally performing it for random audiences. (laughs) Um, But basically, I feel like I find storytelling a really valuable way to, like, cope with kind of difficult moments in my life. Um, I had a essentially a nervous breakdown about two years ago. 
And it was a really hard time in my life. And I kind of thought I would never get to the other end of it. Um, and now at this point in my life, I'm doing much better. And so I performed some stand-up recently that was just about depression and coping with it and seeking help. Um, and I think the process of kind of turning it into a punchline, I don't know if people have seen, you know, Hannah Gadsby, but I think she and I probably have really different perspectives on the purpose of comedy. Um, but to me, making things humorous and like having a punchline to them is just a really uh, validating way of coping with really difficult moments because it doesn't have to be just something that like consumes your life with kind of sadness. And maybe part of it is that I have some distance from it now and I coped with it in other ways. But being able to do comedy is just a really like therapeutic exercise. Yeah. And, you know, in a lot of ways, this is one of those things that I think both connects and separates our generations from older ones, because it's been so typical to talk about your own experiences and to have that as the realm through which you provide some sort of new social commentary. However, I do think there is an element in which young people are just so much more willing to trivialize almost as a way to provide it kind of prominence, right? Things like our own traumas, our mental health, our sexual health and well-being, um, and our identities. And that's one of the things that, in you know, a lot of ways is kind of, I think, has been derided in younger people and at the same time has been a huge source of bonding for younger people who are able to just talk casually and openly about things like having, you know, mental health issues or nervous breakdowns. I just want to pick up quickly on what you said about Hannah Gadsby. So um, for some of our listeners who may not know, she's an Australian kind of performer, author, stand-up comedian, and um, her kind of breakthrough uh, uh, show was called Nanette. And in it, she talks, actually in a lot of her comedy, she talks about things like her history with sexual violence, her sexuality, um, her mental health, her um, diagnosis of autism. What do you think means that you have such a different perspective from her? How would you distinguish the two? I really love Hannah Gadsby and Nanette was a super important piece of work to me. But watching it really made me reflect a lot on how I understand comedy. And I think maybe partially this is just a difference in her and my understanding of how we cope with our own trauma. Like part of this is for me, this works really well but I'm not necessarily making a prescriptive statement that like this should work well for everyone else. Um, and I think my kind of theory is that sometimes trauma and difficult moments in your life can start to feel extremely oppressive and overwhelming. And as if your entire identity has to be kind of shaped around that suffering or that experience of trauma. Um, and I think that the times in my life when I've been able to break through those moments is when I've made it be more about the like comedy of those moments and it just doesn't feel quite so much like it has to be a defining moment in my life in this very negative way and instead can be an opportunity for growth and like that's very stereotypical but it also has actually helped me a lot. Right and you know I, I have had a similar kind of experience with it. I mean one of the things I love saying to people when I joke about it or talk about it is like my number one small talk is tell me about your daddy issues um and i think it's true that a lot of people kind of use humor or they use that kind of 
um, subversion where they know that everyone knows that this is something that's incredibly impactful and they're deliberately making it unimpactful for humor to lighten the mood, to break the ice, to make it easier and more comfortable to talk about those things. That is very common. I just kind of am curious, what do you think about the people who kind of say, well, that for a lot of people can, you know, make it seem like those issues aren't taken seriously? I think part of the issue is that to some extent, I think mental health is taken almost too seriously. And I'll explain what I mean by that. But I think that it can feel as if experiencing mental illness or having to seek treatment is some sort of moral failing or something that should, like I am now a depressed person because I had to seek treatment for depression. And I think that by kind of lightening the mood or making humor about it, it says, no, this is a very like human and normal experience and is something that you can talk openly about and turn into something that's comedic or happy, even if the actual experience of it is really difficult. And I think it's very important for people to speak publicly about it and make it be like, you know, this is a horrible thing that happened to me, but it doesn't have to be my whole life. And part of the reason is because I sought treatment for it and got help for it. And so I think it's like important to kind of like make having those conversations easier and removing some of the mental blocks people have around speaking about it. Exactly. And I think, you know, again, I can only speak for myself really, but one of the things I found is that there's such a difference between the people who trivialize and like make fun of things like mental health and things like, um, you know, physical, sexual, emotional, mental traumas that have themselves experienced it and are doing it as a way to like open the conversation for other people to participate. And those that have it and for whom it is just a punchline that kind of occurs in the abstract to somebody else. And in a way, like that's one of the things I really like about our younger generation is that we're so much less hung up, I think, in terms of what is and is not acceptable or socially acceptable because those social norms, insofar as they ever existed, were not rewritten by us, were not written for us. And I don't think they really subscribe to our own value system in the same way. And if anything, you know, when you're a cusper, you've lived through a series of kind of tumultuous times and all of those have in some ways kind of upended the expectations that people have, right? Like we kind of came of age and became adults right when we were in the middle of a global financial crisis. We didn't necessarily have the same opportunities. We suddenly had this thing called the internet. And then you flip that around. And then now a lot of us are at that age where we're supposed to start putting down our own roots and we're supposed to start establishing solid career paths. We're supposed to purchase houses and become part of communities. And we're in the middle of a pandemic, we're in lockdown, and there's another global recession on the horizon. And, you know, all of those things really spark, and they've always sparked, I think, a revisitation of what we do and do not consider acceptable, and for what reasons. And, you know, Gen Zers will think even the idea of having a podcast is probably bound up in all these unspoken hierarchies and expectations that I can't even consider right now. But we definitely don't feel like we shouldn't talk about things like money and we shouldn't talk about things like sex and religion and our relationships and our mental health and our physical health and you know that makes us quite different um in some ways it also i think does make it difficult because we don't know how to talk about those things we sort of have to figure it out from scratch yeah i think something you said earlier really resonated with me which is talking about how we're 
not considering social norms to like fully dictate what we are allowed to talk about. And I think that a lot of older generations would probably say that their comedy, I'm thinking about like Seinfeld, for instance, um, or like the old school male comics who are very like, there are so many social norms now and there's so much PC culture and, you know, we're trying to attack those norms. And I think the difference is, is what norms each generation is willing to talk about. And I think for the older generation, they're, you know, often attacking people who are politically vulnerable or they're part of the dominant group and then using that dominance as a way to mock or like say, oh, these PC police are so after me because they're trying to make fun of groups that are like not they're that they're not a part of and that don't have like political capital in the same way. And I think that more modern comedy and our generation generally is a little more willing to talk personalize the experience and it's more about attacking power structures rather than just like beating on the groups that are already um disenfranchised right and you know one of the ways that i kind of view that is that and i hear this all the time but it's sort of like for our current moment in time and our generation the predominant rule of satire or comedy is always punch up um don't punch down but for previous generations, it was always not necessarily punching up or down, but it was always punch out and not in. Exactly. Um, and so what you'd find is that people would kind of try and pick, and especially like the idea of observational comedy was a kind of innovation, if you can call it that, of the pop cultural spheres of the 70s, 80s and 90s. They would try and identify what commonalities the group in front of them had and which people didn't fit into that and use that as like an observation, like, oh, aren't we all like this? Isn't this other thing so different? And of course, the kind of uh, almost unintended corollary of that, and I truly do believe that very few of the comics that said things we now consider like horrendously unacceptable uh, didn't intend to go out and be, you know, hugely transphobic, hugely homophobic, incredibly sexist. But it was about just identifying those commonalities that exist. And that by definition, prioritizes those people that are in the mainstream, that are in the majority, and by extension, because of the way that society works, have the power and have the money and are turning up to their shows. It's also about what experiences are universal or are considered universal. So like white men, people who are not white men have been taught to identify with narratives told by white men for just forever. Like think about the books that you were assigned to read in high school, the movies you've watched. It's so common to have white male protagonists and having a white male protagonist doesn't alienate audiences. Like audiences still go and consume that thing and identify with that protagonist. And I think it's similar for comics historically, which is when white men joke about their life, it's seen as this very like universal uh, narrative that people can identify with. And I think we're shifting away from that as there's like more of a prioritization on personal narratives and on hearing from people whose experiences aren't universal, but who are speaking to truths about life and relationships and identity. Um, and so I think that's like a shift as well as just this move away from considering things to be universal that clearly are not. Yeah, um, I completely agree. And completely an aside, actually, I'm quite curious now that you've mentioned it, you know, you talked about the ways in which we have literature, pop culture references inculcated in us, actually not even pop culture, but sort of what we view as hot culture um, inculcated in us. And I was thinking back to my own secondary school experience. Um, and I actually don't really think that we had any 
significant women authors included in the syllabus that I studied at least. You know, it was um, Bless Me Ultima by Rodolfo Anaya. It was A View from the Bridge by Arthur C. Miller. It was a lot of Shakespeare because Britain. Um, the closest that we actually got, not quite sure what this necessarily means, but would be when we'd study poetry. So um, at the time, Caroline Duffy was the um, poet laureate, which I don't know if you have an equivalent in America. We do. But it's essentially like someone who's... who's assigned by the government to be the advocacy for poetry and also composes poems about important events question mark uh, and so she was included quite significantly in the compulsory um, English curriculum poetry anthology and there would be other kind of actually that was the main place that I saw significantly non-white British voices um, and women's voices and so on and I, again I think that is a part of the way in which poetry itself is seen as not quite mainstream literature, that it becomes easier for us to accept poetry that comes from quote-unquote alternative voices in a way that we would maybe struggle with when it came to, you know, a playwright or that we would struggle with when it came to just a, a work of literary fiction. I totally agree. Yeah. No, I think that's totally correct. Your listeners will not have failed to, to realize that Zoe is in fact American. You're actually the first non-British guest that we've had on Cusper so far. So I'm quite curious to hear about kind of how your experiences have been similar or different, or maybe what you view as some of the differences about the things we've discussed between the two places. So I, my dad is British, um, but he's lived in the U.S. for so long now, I think like 25 years, and he's now an American citizen, so very uh, Americanized. But I grew up in South Carolina, which is where I am right now. So it's like the southern United States, which is even more aggressively American. Um, and I went to a quite conservative high school. Um, I don't think I read a female author until senior year of high school. And I was a very like aggressive feminist in high school. Um, so I was very outraged about this. But we read The Poisonwood Bible by Barbara Kingsolver, which is like contemporary literature, which I was super hyped about, and as a female author. Um, and I remember that was, and I read The Awakening by Kate Chopin, which is like a seminal uh, feminist text. And I remember reading that book and I was like, I feel like I've been so robbed for so much of my experience to just be reading these books that I like, like The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. That book is so awful and I was forced to read that book and it's like no one this book is like racist sexist super boring like not even well written and yet we're being forced to read it so I definitely felt like it doesn't make sense well I mean also part of that comes from just who we canonize as exactly. being the greats of local literature right so so in you know in my school it was a lot of Shakespeare it was a lot of Dickens in America it sounds like you're forced to read Twain and I'm not necessarily saying that these individual writers were themselves bad. What I don't necessarily think is true is that they were so exceptionally better than contemporary women writers who, well, maybe not in Shakespeare's day, but certainly by Charles Dickens' day, we, we had tons of Victorian authors who were women who were excellent. Um, but they don't quite get the same amount of premier recognition, you know? Like, Charles exactly. Dickens ended up on banknotes in this country. William Turner ends up on banknotes in this country. Um, but it takes a very long time to get people around to the idea of putting Jane Austen on a banknote in this country. And so I think that sort of predisposes us to thinking in certain ways. And of course, 
the worst part is by the time that everyone else realizes that this has happened and they need to fight against this, the generation that is viewing this with new eyes and has a fresh opportunity to say, well, why shouldn't women be on more banknotes or why shouldn't we be decolonizing our curriculum, which is a word that's become quite politicized now, but essentially means, you know, reflecting the broader spectrum, I think, of voices that existed even historically. Um, everyone else doesn't realize that they've already had a particular viewpoint formed and they think they're still neutral arbiters of these viewpoints, but they still feel that like defensive reaction against it. Exactly. It's just people think that because something is the way it is, that has some sort of, that holds some sort of value in the world. Like I think my mom is a medievalist. Yeah. So basically she does a bunch of stuff on female authors from medieval times and you know many people would be like well weren't all women illiterate and like could women even like do anything um and they were writing these really impressive texts like marjorie kemp and stuff so i think it is really valuable because sometimes people are like oh if i've only read this slate of authors that means only those people were writing and so it kind of functions as an erasure of all these other writers and the diversity that was actually happening at the time and feeds into this narrative where you see modernity and you're like wow we are so much better than they were back then and i think it leads to this kind of um hierarchy of history where you see history as something that is always moving towards progress and always improving on prior generations and in reality you know women authors have been writing for millennia would you say that there are ways in which the progression of time has led to regression and not progress that's a great question i think that actually I was thinking about this partially with, um, you know, industrialization uh, and mostly just from a perspective of like white women during that time period. So like prior to industrialization, women had a lot more autonomy, especially like middle and upper class women um, were able to kind of like work in the home and be members of the household and their labor was seen as very valuable to the household because it effectively couldn't function without them. And then as automation increased and as people were able to get pre-made goods instead of having to make them internally, women really stopped having a significant role in like, as someone would say, you know, like economic productivity, like they weren't contributing to the GDP or whatever. And I think part of that was a product of industrialization. And while working class women, you know, were much more part of the general like capitalist structure for like middle and upper class women, they were kind of trapped more in the home and weren't given like things to do or contribute. Yeah. And of course, that's something that I think a lot of people, when they look at the broad strokes of history, you know, that's, if I were to ask myself the same question, for me, that so depends on how big your time horizon is, because yes. we can look at the 1800s to now and say, but in most ways, you know, people are less likely to get sick, they live longer, the vast majority of people are wealthier all across the world, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera, until you realize that they were only in that position in the first place because of what had happened between the 1600s and the 1800s. And we, in our, I guess, um, hyper rapid era of technological, but also cultural progress, sometimes forget how much the 1800s is not that dissimilar to 2020. Um, and, you know, those broad shifts that have taken place in terms of gender roles, like, 
I think that a lot of our understandings of e.g. homosexuality and gender identity are so strictly regimented now in a way that would have been unthinkable in the vast majority of the planet in the 1650s. Um, and that's really affected a lot of the presumptions under which even people that are now kind of seen as trailblazers or as breaking the mold have to enact all of their relationships. I Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I think what you're talking about too, with especially like history for LGBTQ people, um, when I was at University of Melbourne with you, uh, I was in a class called, I think, Thinking Sex. It was amazing. But we talked about the way that a lot of gay men at certain times have pointed to relationships between men in ancient Greece as evidence that homosexuality is something that is a constant in society. And at one point it was even more accepted. Um, and that class was so interesting because we talked about kind of like what context, like what was it actually like to have relationships between men. And it was actually very like patriarchal in a lot of ways. Like there was kind of this idea that there was one person who was like the penetrator and one person who was the penetrated. And it was always like younger boys were the penetrated is I guess the term. And so it was just like a really interesting lesson because I think it was seen as very egalitarian in some ways by modern scholars. And then if you kind of like were thinking about it, there was still these power structures. Right. And then uh, there's so many different elements to unpack there, because on the one hand, obviously, you've got the uh, physical distinction where the body part someone has is just clearly much less of a consideration for the vast majority of humans, for the vast majority of human history. But you contra that. And in a lot of ways, I think our expectations about the equality of partners within a relationship is much stronger now, even for relationships that aren't sort of normatively heterosexual. Totally. I think the other thing that I, you know, and I always think the most interesting conversations or debates are ones that there is no clear consensus on and that I myself can't really form an argument about, uh, even from a selfish perspective. For me, the idea of imposing, I guess, a modern um, framework of sexual division onto people that lived hundreds of years ago and for whom the words homosexuality, heterosexuality and bisexuality would have been meaningless is a significant conflict because I think it is very useful to be able to say that aspects of these behaviors are completely common between 2020 AD and 2020 BC. And then in a huge number of ways, if someone did that to me in 4040 AD, I would certainly find that deeply uncomfortable. And it's not unreasonable to believe that those individuals would likely not have felt the same way either. Yeah, I think one of the most interesting things is kind of how sex has become so tied up in personal identity, uh, particularly like sexual orientation, Um, because like it does seem like for a lot of groups of people, sexual orientation was not like a fundamental aspect of identity. And I think that it is so interesting now how that's become kind of like just a very it's, it's essentially the same as like gender or race or ethnicity. Um, and that seems like a shift that's happened really in the past century in Western culture. Do you think that, that those things are equivalent or do you think that there's some distinctions? And if so, which? I honestly don't know. I think that one of the most interesting parts is that sexual orientation isn't, um, 
in many cases is not immediately visible in the same way that other identities are. I mean, gender also shouldn't be immediately visible, but people code people as particular genders based on their presentation. And that happens with sexual orientation as well. But I think like, I definitely feel like my sexual orientation is something that people would not necessarily know about me unless I was to come out about it. And I think that is kind of a difference in identity. I don't know what your thoughts are on this. Well, yeah, I mean, one of the other things that I find really interesting is a perspective about this. And, you know, I, I completely understand the people that use um, sexuality, gender identity, you know, race, um, and so on as being equivalent forms of identity. I, I see where they're coming from, because I think they are things that are equally codified within society, and therefore there are common structures that we have to unpick. So one of the things I always talk about is like marriage norms end up affecting LGBT people who are not straight enough for marriage, but also affect non-white people who've been excluded from the interracial um, stigma that has existed in marriage, for example. Um, and likewise, it's a gender issue because marriage has historically been a way of like acquiring a woman for the family home. However, um, for me, a lot of it is about an activity, right? Like one of the things that I find so interesting is people say these are the same thing. And I'm like, yeah, okay, but what does it mean to feel black? Or what does it mean to feel feel brown or what does it mean to feel like a woman those things are so different to sexuality because sexuality is about your explicit desires and in a lot of ways it's about your at least in the ways it's been criminalized across the world right it's about your activities yes. and so one of the things that i always say is i'm kind of neutral on the idea of whether or not people are born that way however i actually think it's really important we kind of are very careful about how we use that language because I would like people to accept same-sex activity regardless of whether or not that same-sex activity is being done by people who feel like they were born that way and it was inherent to them and they have no choice, so to speak. And I think that's the first distinction and it kind of ties into what you said about it being something that can be hidden or that people can closet themselves about, right? Because you never have to reveal your interior. But I think the second aspect of this, again, it's, it's sort of related to what we were talking about before a little bit, is that um, I think much more so than e.g. your race, there is an element of fluidity that all people experience. And I want to be really clear what I mean here, right? Like, unless you feel equally horny all the time for the same sort of person all the time, you're experiencing in a limited way gender fluidity or sexual fluidity. And that might not necessarily vary so much across what sort of individual you're attracted to or how you individually feel, but there's already an element to which those desires and wants, which in a society someone might want to police, vary from one moment to the next. And then we kind of extend that, and then there are lots of people for whom their self-expression in terms of gender or their desires regarding other people vary very significantly or potentially over much larger periods of time, in a way that I don't necessarily think happens for things like your race, and actually doesn't even happen for things like your nationality or things like your class, which are assigned to you or will always be associated with your history. So, you know, it's so interesting to me that solidarity movements are often assumed to be identical to one another in structure, because they're not. Yes. And I think that really is to misunderstand the point of solidarity, which is why what happens is that the Black Lives Matter movement ignores 
black trans lives and the LGBT movement ignores black LGBT people, it's because people think solidarity means we have the same experiences, therefore my experiences are sufficient to cover all of yours. Yes. Actually, it's not that at all. It's that we have very different experiences. And exactly the point we're making is that there shouldn't be normative structures that force us into certain ways of being because that doesn't just affect us sometimes. Ever doing that will affect all sorts of people in all sorts of ways we might not even appreciate. I think that's very true. And I think also the part where you talked about how you don't necessarily want a structure that tells you this is the way you should experience your identity. I've thought about that a lot with being bi, just because I think that for me, my sexual orientation is not a primary identity for me. Like it's just something where, and I mean, I think this is true maybe of other bi people as well and probably straight people or whoever. But for me, it's like, I just kind of have relationships with people I want to have relationships with. And I don't really like to think of myself as a member of some sort of like larger bi movement. Like I just want to kind of be my own person. But at the same time, when I'm hyper individualizing my experience in that way, it sort of detracts from, I think, movements and trying to find kind of commonalities between those experiences. Like, I think it's sort of this very, like, I don't want to say capitalist, but maybe way of understanding yourself where you're like, I am the only person who experiences my life this way. And it's like important for me to feel independent and like I'm unique. Oh, yeah. I mean, honestly, my favorite tweet of all time is it's quite a recent tweet. And I'm so sorry, I don't know who coined this tweet, because I think you're one of the great authors of our age. But the tweet just says, but how does this affect me, the protagonist of reality? And I'm like, it's so true. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that is how I feel. I think that at this point, kind of the LGBT community is bound by just an existence of not straightness. You know, it's sort of like almost oppositional, it feels like in some ways, where it's like, well, I'm not straight, so therefore I am a member of this community. But I've been thinking about this a lot lately with especially um, by women in straight relationships, because, you know, I was in a relationship for almost two years with a man, and I very much was like, straight passing and I'm I'm kind of always straight passing you know I have really long hair and I dress very femininely and like don't talk about my sexuality very much but I see a lot of other bi women in straight relationships who are like you are erasing my identity and I'm queer and my relationship is queer and I've been just feeling kind of like strange about this thing where 
I sometimes feel like bi women in straight relationships are sort of trying to say that somehow them being bi queers their entire relationship. But if you're in a heterosexual relationship and you have straight passing privilege, then I don't know like how valuable or I don't know. I, I have no idea what my thoughts are on this. And that's why I wanted to talk about it because I've just been seeing that a lot where people are like, everyone is erasing me. Well, there's also so many layers to this because I, one of the things that I've felt quite strongly recently, and I've had to converse about this a lot because people like Gandhi and Churchill have suddenly entered this discourse again of like, they are heroes or they're not heroes. And I'm like, well, what if they're both? Like, I just yes. can't explain it to you. But it's like Churchill can simultaneously have defeated a murderous dictator and also have been one himself, right? Like, it's very easy, or I think people look for convenient um, opinions to be able to form because as a heuristic, it means that you have to do less careful managing about how you deploy one person as an example in certain situations or talk about them. And you know, straight passing people or white passing people in in, in, in racial liberation movements, I think fall into the same um, space where it is absolutely true that I think huge amounts of biophobia exist within the LGBT community. And one of the things that, so I kind of have the opposite problem, which is that I also am not ever read as bi, but it's because I'm always read as gay, right? So I'm not bypassing because I'm gay passing, question mark. Um, and biphobia exists in so many forms, which I'm sure that, you know, we could talk all day about it, but those issues are real and they often do stem from within the community itself. So there is a huge value, I think, in people advocating for it. And then at the same time, I completely understand that the specific issues that, you know, by women that are in heterosexual relationships face, um is not equivalent to the issues that lesbians face. I figured out what I wanted to say about this, which is I think that sometimes what I have at least observed about myself as well when I'm in a relationship, in a relationship with a man and then I'm like, oh, I'm bi and I feel like people are erasing my identity, which they totally do. I am not at all arguing that they don't. But I feel like sometimes it's a way of disassociating yourself from heterosexuality and the power that comes from heterosexuality and the mere fact that you are bi doesn't mean that you no longer have benefits of being in a heterosexual relationship that's my issue is like i feel like there needs to be some sort of acknowledgement that you both have a lot of privilege conferred to you as a result of that status and at the same time there are a lot of disadvantages as well due to the kind of things we're talking about which is like erasure of your identity right and, you know, uh, I, I, I want to be really clear about this because I feel like there are a lot of people that I've spoken to and, you know, that I know and friends with, work with and so on, for whom the word privilege can be quite confusing. What I think a lot of people don't understand about it is that it's actually nothing to do with you. It's about the things that you get given by other people, whether you realize it or not, or whether you've asked for it or not. And um, in that way, like, I completely agree that if you look traditionally feminine, you are dating a man, you're not really talking a lot about all of the women that you want to date, then you get excused all of the scrutiny or interrogation or discrimination or the snide remarks or the presumptions or stereotypes that a lot of other women do 
even if they're otherwise quite similar to you. And so I think that acknowledgement is the thing that's the most frustrating at times, because I think equal membership of a group is not the same as equal participation in all parts of it. And in the same way that I get so irritated when I look at, I, I mean, particularly Indian, but like Asian people within the broader racial liberation movement, it's like, yes, we f face a huge amount of racism. That racism is completely non-equivalent to the racism that black people face. And especially coming from a culture where racism against black people is itself ingrained. So even in a situation where we're the racial majority and we're kind of excused from the same power structures that exist, black people are at the bottom. And that's an, a kind of mindset that's inculcated. So for me, it's really abhorrent, actually, when I see people that are Asian trying to equivocate their own experiences to individuals that have all of those own experiences and additional ones that brown people never even have to think about. And perhaps for both of us, what we're really saying is it's also that just like ignorance of how many other layers there could be for other people and the assumption that just because it's all that happens to you, that's all that could happen to anyone. I think that's a really good way of putting it. And I guess it's more like I just want to somehow have a way of thinking about yourself as both a member of a group and also, you know, experiencing a lot of advantages in these other ways. And so it's not to say at all that, like, if you are a bi woman in a straight relationship, you don't experience oppression. Like, that's not at all what this is saying, but more like, think about the ways in which you might still experience privilege from this status that's conferred on you. And at the same time, what ways are you disadvantaged? And it just needs to be a little more like, it's not as clear cut, I think, is what I'm trying to argue. And that, you know, it like does require, I, I've spent, you know, years trying to sort this out for myself. And I still feel like I have no real good takeaways that make sense. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's what's so hard about this is you spend so much time being like, okay, what is like my opinion on this? And how do I justify it? And it's sort of like, I think only by talking to people who have similar experiences to me or have thought about the same questions. It's just teaching me what questions I need to ask next and not necessarily right. being like, now I have the answer. Have you um, read Peggy McIntosh's essay, White Privilege and Male Privilege? I think I have, but years ago. So for our, for our listeners, um, so Peggy McIntosh was uh, a, a kind of like 1980s. I don't know why her, the, the decade she did this stuff is rather, but like in the 1980s, um, she was uh, a prominent author, and she still is actually, um, for um, feminism and anti-racism. Uh, she herself was a white woman, and she published this essay called White Privilege and Male Privilege. And in this essay, at one point, she like writes a numbered list of 46 different ways that she as a white person experiences privilege and she's very explicitly trying to kind of do what you're saying which is draw this distinction of like well okay i'm a woman i'm just privileged against a lot of men however these are all the ways i'm not additionally disprivileged and it's stuff that if you aren't white are very obvious and that if you are white it probably like blows your mind to think about this and you know it's stuff like well I can go and seek healthcare without feeling like I'm going to be discriminated against by my own doctors I'd never have to worry about teaching my children about how to navigate racism so that they don't get attacked in the streets and then these are the little ways in which those things eventually accumulate I think the other thing that I find really distressing about um about this almost hierarchization of privilege is that a lot of people have a tendency 
again, because they are the protagonists of reality, perhaps, but they almost like kind of use this, well, what about X framework to distract from primary issues and talk about issues that they themselves feel very strongly. So, you know, we can kind of say, well, I never have to teach my children how to navigate race and I never have to tell them how to behave when they get stopped by a police officer. And they're like, well, what about sexual assault? And I'm like, well, okay, that is an issue that predominantly affects women. And it's an issue that's hugely impactful, but they're actually kind of unrelated. And those kinds of conversations always miss the point, I think, that there is a separate group that is people that both have to worry about sexual assault and also have to teach their children or worry about how they're going to interact with the police because black women also exist. And so what I think a lot of people fail to recognize is that it isn't just about like a single issue that is so big it overshadows or outweighs others. It's actually that tons and tons and tons of tiny minute things eventually add up to become so big of a gulf that it is both insurmountable and also impossible to solve because you can't just solve it all with one issue. You have to work out how to just unpick, you know, like a million medium to small size issues. Um, we talk about that a lot in gender studies where people will always want to identify the, what is it called? I can't remember, but it's like the keystone oppression. So it's like, okay, right. well, is it class? Is that the fundamental form of oppression from which all other forms of oppression stem? And many Marxists would obviously argue yes. But I think that's an, what you're talking about kind of illuminates the unproductiveness of those inquiries because it seems virtually impossible for us to identify what is the central form of oppression from which all other oppressions stem. But that yeah. also kind of makes it very difficult because you're like, okay, well, if I can't identify some sort of central cause, then how do we even go about fixing things? Yeah. Um, so, I'm sorry yeah. to, I'm sorry to, I'm sorry to keep quitting, but do you remember when I dated a guy who told me that racism didn't exist and it was all just a form of class oppression? Yes. And I frequently, frequently brought him to your apartment. <laughs> yes. Well, the thing is, I also have dated a guy who has made basically that same argument. Why do you think it's so common? I think that, first of all, I think class is something that in particular white men find very compelling. Um, because it prevents them from having to do like strong interrogations about their own identity. Second of all, I feel like um, some white men just love economics and think that because it's quantifiable in these very like easy ways, therefore it's the most legitimate way of understanding the world because it's all right. based in math and that's like the only truth. It's like this feeling of wanting like objectivity and concreteness to things, I think. And I think class is one of those things where it's very obvious and it seems like something that's more approachable due to the fact that there's very identifiable inequalities in the form of money. Hey listeners, just a reminder that this is a two-part episode, so we'll catch you next week for the rest of this conversation on Cuspers. Cuspers.